Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I am Harrison Cayley, and joining me digitally and virtually is Corey Schink. Hello, everybody. And today, like I mentioned last week, we are going to be talking about the recent Jordan Peterson-Sam Harris debates. The backstory behind this is that if um, if you're a you know, Jordan Peterson fan, if you've been watching his stuff, you'll probably know that last year, I believe, um, Peterson appeared on Sam Harris's podcast, Waking Up, twice, and it really got a mixed response, and I think most people would agree it didn't go very well. Harris and Peterson got hung up on defining the word truth for the first podcast, and I believe most of the second one as well, but the second one went kind of better. So this organization called Pangburn Philosophy set up a series of debates featuring Harris and Peterson, the first two of which took place in Vancouver earlier this month, and the second two took place in Dublin and, I believe, London. And while they haven't been released yet, there have been some audience members who recorded the, the talks and then put them up on YouTube. So Corey and I have listened to the first two of the four, and we're going to be talking about them. The, the premise of the debates, if you can put it in a nutshell, is that there is basically a moral, a moral crisis in the world today. And what they mean by that is that they, we have lost track of the, the means by which we make sense of the world, and there, therefore the, the morality that we come up with um, because of that. And the alternatives on offer are the traditional religions traditionally interpreted, and that is primarily what I, th what I think Sam Harris um, speaks out against. But the other alternative is um, relativism and nihilism, and Peter S or Harris speaks out against that as well. And he has that much in common with Jordan Peterson, because Peterson says the same thing. Peterson would put that down to the, the dual problems of too much order and too much chaos. And between those extremes, both of them think that it is a worthwhile project to try to come up with a way in which to find um, an objective morality, essentially, that we can live by that doesn't have the negative features of those two options. So throughout the, the two debates that we listened to, uh, we'll have links to the, to the audience recordings in the show notes, and they will be um, released professionally, you know, professionally edited and, um, and everything, you know, officially in August, I believe. That's at least what Peterson says. So in those two debates, they, Harris and Peterson actually find a lot of common ground, um, but there are also points where it is as if they are speaking over each other's heads or not getting each other's points. Or, well, I'd say that I think that, I think Peterson gets Harris's points, even the ones that Harris thinks that Peterson doesn't get. But um, but to, to people who like are on Harris's side of the camp, they just see Peterson's answers as evasive and 
and kind of skirting around the heart of the matter. We'll get into some spe- sp- some specifics on how that happened, um, but that's just an overall kind of takeaway from the debates that I took and that others have taken as well. I've I've watched and read some reactions to them online, and it's pretty interesting to see. Well, first of all, just to to start out with, it's very interesting that these are even as popular as they are because these are two kind of nerdy academics in a sense talking about like <laughs> philosophical issues like relating to truth and values and and uh religion philosophy really and when you listen to the to the recordings um like you you hear people break out in applause like regularly throughout the talk you know as each as each side makes their point and then um after an hour and a half uh, Brett Weinstein is uh Weinstein I believe is how he pronounces it, it is um he's um moderating the debates and he you know so he kind of keeps them on track and comes in with questions and after an hour and a half he says okay time's up um now it's time for questions and answers and the crowd just like pretty much goes crazy to uh in response to the question if they should just keep going with the debate um or taking questions so the audience um gave up their question and answer periods on, on all nights, I believe. I think it was all four nights just to hear them uh, talk. So it's pretty pretty remarkable to see that kind of response for this kind of talk. Um, what do you think about that, Corey? Oh, you know, well, Sam Harris, I think he's one of those guys that people love to hate in certain ways because he's, he, you know, he's very intelligent and he speaks his mind really well. But if you're a religious person or somebody who has like kind of a spiritual um, or sympathies with like, you know, spirituality, then he's the kind of guy who, you know, who angers you because of his dogmatic rejection of, of, of religions, of, any, of everything having to do with religion. So I think that a lot of people, you know, they, they cheer on Jordan Peterson because they, they feel like he's championing their, their cause. And then other people just absolutely hate uh, you know, Islam or the monotheistic religions in general, and they really get back behind Harris because he he points out the obvious and he does it extremely concisely and intelligently. And he, at one point during the second debate, he he kind of mocks himself, saying that he just shoots fish in a barrel. But you know, the points that he makes about religion are are really valid. A lot of them are, mm-hmm. um, even if he is kind of, if he does reject them dogmatically. But I also think that, um, you know, there's some allure to this whole intellectual dark web that that's going on where people get this, this sense of, of learning, um, just the, the secrets of, you know, or of seeing the, this, this clash of ideas taking place, uh, that, you know, otherwise people, you know, you don't get a chance, you don't, in universities, you don't really get a chance to explore this, this level of the clash of ideas, rock stars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> arguing and debating the fine points of truth. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it's really interesting to see this almost religious, if you want to say this religious energy that's coming out in the, in the, the audience's reactions to these debates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. Um, well, one of the th- just to respond to the kind of the ca- the characterization of Sam Harris that you just gave, um, there were actually some things that I didn't know about Sam Harris that I found out recently and that come out in these debates. And after listening to these, I mean, I think I had an impression of him that was a bit too harsh in certain regards, um, not in others, but 
Uh, I say that because in certain ways he does seem very open-minded, um, mm-hmm. more more than even some of the other kind of celebrity atheists like uh, like Richard Dawkins or um, Christopher Hitchens, in the sense that he 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 has this what seems to be on the surface level at least the same goal of Jordan Peterson, and and that is to to find a a universal objective morality to to essentially make the world a better place, as they both put it in the um, in the in the talks. And he's open to to things like religious experience and like psychedelic experiences, and the, even the fact that there are truths that can be found in religious traditions. And like he's like he says at various points, there are some religions that he just doesn't even talk about because he doesn't find anything like really bad about them. He may not agree with them, but what what he really is out to kind of destroy is what he sees as the the aspects of religion that are are truly pathological and negative in the world. I think where he um, one of the reasons that people respond to him, well, like religious people respond to him in the way that they do, and that there is this impression of him as as really totally close minded, is that in that um, in that kind of bracketed off sphere of religion he is really like dogmatic and like super anti-religion like he doesn't see any redeeming qualities oh, well on the one hand he he will say that there are truths that can be found but on the other hand he he totally dismisses religion as a as a thing he thinks that anything good in religion can be stated in a different way without any of the religious um, baggage or framework uh, but at the same so he's kind of contradictory in a sense um but that comes down to just him, um, his worldview being that everything can be explained in terms of, I guess, like the just the scientific framework and basic scientific empiricism um, that if we just look at the facts of the world, we can, and we use our minds, we use our reason, we can come to uh, a formulation of any of the religious truths in a manner that leaves out any kind of supernaturalism, any kind of like woo-woo. Um, so we should just leave all that behind. But at the same time, he, like he'll see, he can see the the benefits of certain types of religions and religious practices. Like I, I believe he even meditates. Um, he's he's done like Buddhist practices, and I think he's into psychedelics too. I think. You looked into that a yes, bit, Corey. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe give a little background on that. What did what did you find out about uh, Sam Harris? Well, you know, Sam Harris is a le- like uh, other kind of free thinking individualist uh, people who he he tried psychedelics when he was a young man. I believe it was in his twenties, and he had an experience that he said, you know, opened his mind to the fact that his he could evolve his consciousness, um, and you know he it's it's very pretty it's pretty typical he's still you know on his podcast he's discussed uh having um uh the importance of of using uh psychedelics how they can kind of you know break you out of this you know the matrix quote unquote you know <laughs> that we live in um and then he's also said that if his children don't uh, try psychedelics at least once in their adult lives he'll wonder whether they had actually missed one of the most important rites of passage uh, mm. you know he uses those words rites of passage a human being can experience so you know that's uh i think that kind of gave me an insight into his mindset because when you listen to him speak 
uh, you know, he's written The End of Faith, and he's written uh, the, the Moral Landscape. He's uh, a neuroscientist, and you get the sense that he uh, has had a revelation, um, a revelation about, uh, about something, about the way, you know, about the way forward for humanity, and it involves this transcendental um, rationality, you know, I think that's what he uses, uh, he uses that term in the debate, this transcendental rationality, that it kind of sounds like is, you know, this kind of psychedelic woo-woo, <laughs> you know, like this way of, um, of being that if you could just leave behind all of the, 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 the baggage, the, you know, the pathological baggage and everything and just open your third eye, then everything would make sense and you wouldn't need, um, you know, you wouldn't need uh, the religion, you wouldn't need stories, you wouldn't need narratives, you mm -hmm. wouldn't need all of these things that are holding people back from just uh, apprehending reality as it is and making choices based on the information as it's presented to them. And I think that there is, um, you know, that's pretty much the crux of the whole debate right there is that he, he believes that's possible. Jordan Peterson doesn't think so. He thinks that basically as human beings we're hardwired uh, not to be able um, to to do that, that we you can interpret facts, you can interpret situations, objects into a, a million different ways, and that you can't um, that you need a narrative, an overarching narrative, uh, a meaning system in order to orient you towards the world of facts. But but anyways, that that's what I got the impression just from reading about his ex his experiences with psychedelics that he he had a revelation at some point and it's you know he still is running on that in some way. Mm -hmm. But it was a it wasn't enough of a of a revelation to kind of turn him religious or right. or spiritual in the sense of um, accepting. Well, I, I don't know actually. I, I haven't heard him talk about this before, and I've even heard someone. Um, Alex, um, I can't pronounce his last name or I can't remember it, from Skeptico, he said that he heard um, um, Sam Harris on some of his podcasts recently being open to panpsychism, for instance, which mm -hmm. I think we've mentioned on the show, which is like basically just the philosophical idea that consciousness is not just a product of, or it's not just a feature of humans or even some animals, but that some there is some form of consciousness or experience, even at the most basic level, at the most basic level of the of the material world. So, for instance, you could have, or, or like the the most simple particles, for instance, would be aware in some like rudimentary fashion, and because otherwise we couldn't explain the emergence of consciousness, of subjectivity, of the, you know the feeling of. Uh, well, just the experience of experience without that being somehow part of the fabric of the universe. Um, so he might even be open to that, um, which is interesting. But I think that, like, when I get a, an image in my head of of Sam Harris, it's like if you take a, a, a circle with all the possibilities, he, Sam Harris is this very ordered, like, shape, maybe like a... a, a Pentagram, Pentagon or something in, in, that, in that circle and he's got all of his like all the things he knows and that he's sure of and he's very um, very articulate in formulating those thoughts and defending them but there's this circle um, around him of all the stuff that he doesn't all the, all, all the things about reality that he can't include in his worldview because he can't fit it into that that very very structured and very um, 
for what it's worth, like coherent, even though it is coherent in other incoherent in other ways, into that structure. Whereas if you look at like Jordan Peterson, he's more of like a like a um, a starfish or something with little appendages that are going like outside of the circle that are co- yeah. constantly like they're they're pushing the boundaries and trying to f- like they've got he's got like intuitions of something more than than what fits into Sam Harris's worldview and he's kind of stretching out and trying to trying to articulate those things that are outside of the the frame of reference of a guy like Sam Harris and in the process he gets more of the picture um, at times he might be like going a little bit in the wrong direction or not saying something as clearly as he should but to me at least that's the that's the image is that he's he's um he's incorporating into his into his thinking and into his actual being more of reality than Sam Harris is willing to entertain because Sam Harris is is kind of shackled by uh uh what what like his possible pan psychism notwithstanding what seems to be a very materialistic framework and that comes out in the way that he formulates his idea of um of the good which would be like his idea of well-being because um this is this is probably one of the the biggest points in all of the debates so far um and that is how can we come to um to like the framework that that we use to to create this kind of objective morality and and how we should live in the world and so of course peterson links this back to mythology and stories and um and possibly even like a a a wider and larger metaphysical something that we don't quite understand whereas for harris harris thinks that we can eliminate all that like you said and go back and well just strictly limit ourselves to uh, an appraisal of the facts of existence and from that we can rationally create a system that will be basically like ideally it will be utopian like we'll we'll figure everything out and once we have that all once we have all that figured out we'll know what to do and we'll be better people and the way in which he um he backs that up like logically and and through his argumentation is that if if we look at the basic facts he he quali- he classifies this as a fact for instance that there is such a thing as like the worst possible outcome so if you imagine like the worst possible suffering for every conscious creature that is objectively bad that is a f- that is a fact and if we accept that then certain values follow from that that um so certain behaviors might be wrong we should do certain things and we shouldn't do other things and we and we should do we should be kind of moving towards elim- eliminating that worst suffering in all its particulars so um and I th- and that makes sense to a, to a certain degree um and peterson even even would agree with with some of those um some of those presuppositions and even some of those values they they both agree that we that we should be essentially being better people and lessening the suffering um but what the where they come at loggerheads with each other is is the is if that rationalization if that justification actually works or not because like i said harris thinks that's a a fact in the same way that you know when you're looking at your desk or you're listening to this on your computer or your phone that phone you know exists right it is real you are listening to this show through that device that is a right. fact harris thinks that that's something we can all agree on right because it's an objective fact Mm-hmm. Right, and, but I think that it's interesting because uh, Jordan Peterson, what 
he he said was that what you're looking at there in terms of the worst possible outcome versus the best possible outcome was itself a narrative. It wasn't a fact. It was the narrative of heaven and hell. <laughs> well, yeah, because because the way that 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 plays out is in a story form. Let, let's get to that in a couple minutes. But I want to take it slightly from a different angle first, um, because. Several times throughout the debates, Jordan Peterson's like, well, no, that's not a fact. That's not factually true. And the only way in which you can think it's factually true is if you stretch the, the borders of what a fact is. And uh, Harris kind of conceded that point to, to some degree uh, on some occasions. Like, for example, he said, okay, well, well yeah, but, but it's something that we, that we can't help but presuppose in the same way that, uh, well, he makes an analogy to mathematical or arithmetical truths for instance he says that like you know you can learn that two plus two is four by by using objects like you, you're taught oh here's two rocks and here's another two rocks those make four and eventually through our intellectual um like capacities we can then generalize that to any any four objects you know two of any object plus two two more of that object make four so you can generalize that to two of anything plus two of anything equals four and but that's a can you say that 2 plus 2 is a fact? Um, well, d it depends on how you define fact, right? Because ordinarily, well, I think in, um, at least in common, common, uh, the common usage of the term, a fact, I'd say, um, now this is just kind of off the top of my head, I haven't developed it to any great degree, but I'd say for the most part, facts are like um, physical truths. So they're, they're things that are, are true about objects or true about... Um, objects in motion. Um, well, but there are more truths than that. But let's just limit that to a fact. Like a f fact comes from Latin, I believe, and the and fact the the word basically means something done. So it's uh, like if you're looking in the world, that car moved this fast. That car moved from there to there. That object is is this. That object is not that. Um, you know, this happened. This did not happen. It's a statement about the world, and you can judge that as true or false based on if that statement actually lines up with reality. That's what in philosophy they call like truth as correspondence. So whether your proposition corresponds to an actual state of affairs in the world. But of course you can say that a mathematical truth is, is true. Um, and maybe you could even call it a fact if you want to include that, that species of truth within that category of fact. Um, and so the point that, that Harris is making is that you can do that with with uh, values as well, you can say, okay, the worst possible thing is bad, and that is a fact. And Peterson's point is that, well, and I think that he even agrees to a certain degree, like with, with Harris, he would agree that that is really bad. It is true that that is bad. But the thing is, is that Harris, um, he tries, well, he's, the way I'd put it, now this isn't the way Peterson put it, puts it, but um, Harris doesn't have a way, he doesn't have a worldview in which values can be true in the same way that a physical fact can be true. Because of, um, because of Harris's like empirical scientific materialism, basically. Because when you, when you look into materialistic philosophy, one of the things about it, one of the things about the philosophy that underlies the way we do science is that there is, and I've talked about this before on the show, there is no rational way of justifying the existence or the truth or the effectiveness of something like a value. So what Harris does is he says it's just self-evident and it's a presupposition of the way we think 
um, that th certain things are bad and certain things are good. And that's where he ends it. So, th and then he develops values based on that. So um, P Peterson's criticism is that he, well, first of all, you can't derive values from facts. Values in the way that we think about values from facts that we, the way that we think about facts. Not by stretching the boundaries, just in terms of, you know, what is and what ought to be. You can't, you can't just look at a set of facts and then say, oh, well, from that set of facts, it just makes, it's, it's just self-evident that one thing is better than another. Because right there, when the, that's the first step, is as soon as you say one thing is better than another thing, you're introducing a value into it. So what, uh, what Harris is essentially doing is finding the most basic value and then deriving values from that basic value. But he hasn't derived that, that initial value from any facts in the world. He's just said, this thing's better than, than uh, another thing. That's a value. And from that, we can then develop more values. But he hasn't, he, he hasn't provided a justification for why that first thing is bad other than to say, oh, we just all think it's bad. And that's the problem of the, the modern scientific worldview in a nutshell, is that we might have an intuition that something's bad, but we can't rationally justify why it is bad and why we should move towards something better. It's um, because if you just think, if you just accept that we all believe it and we all think it's true, um, well, first of all, that, that will be debatable, but there won't be any there won't be any reason inherent in that why it actually is true because someone could always say, well, we might, actually, we might just think that's true, but actually it's not. It's actually not good to, um, to lessen suffering in the world. In fact, it's probably, you know, a person could rationally and logically from the same, um, from the same materialistic worldview say, no, that we just think that's good, but it's not. It's actually better if we were to... Um, to increase suffering, and there are people that actually believe that. Um, whether you know how deep their convictions are is is uh, another question. But there are people that think that it would be better if the world was just obliterated, and, and well, and, and you see that in like the you know well Peterson would say you see that in the in like the school shooters and the people that fantasize about um, genocide and just killing everyone and destroying everything, and. So, so there's this, there's a lack in Harris's philosophy that, that he, he can't rationally justify what he thinks he can rationally justify, because all it comes down to is, um, is I think this is, I think this is bad. We can all agree it's bad, and let's just start there. But there's, there's something missing, and that's what Peterson is trying to, to get across um, in his criticisms. That, that there is an interpretive framework from which we make that initial um, value judgment, that initial judgment that something is worse than something else. And where does that framework come from? And he argues that um, along several streams, that for one, it's, a, it's a, an immeasurably long um, product of, for instance, evolution. And even before evolution, it, it's something about about just the the way the whole, the universe has developed and beings have developed you know from from before the first single celled organism to you know humans that there is a continuity in that entire stretch of develop the development of matter and consciousness that has made us what we are and influenced the way we think and so and that's even just from a from a, a like a material and evolutionary perspective what Peterson doesn't get into as much is the 
the kind of um, the actual metaphysical implications of that stated in like a um, like a systematic philosophical language. Um, arguably, that is possible, but um, Peter's, that's where I see Peterson kind of reaching past the boundaries of the known into the unknown and trying to grasp for something, is that he's got, like, he knows that there is this interpretive framework. He knows that it applies to everything about human consciousness, and he's looking for a way to, for how that fits into the fabric of the universe. Um, and one of the ways in which that framework works and this is something that he he brought up as a counterpoint to, to Sam Harris, is that it even works when we're trying to determine what facts are. Because like you said, Corey, one of the things he argues is there are there are an infinite number of facts and an infinite number an infinite number of interpretations of those facts. So why is any one interpretation better than the been better than any others? And what is our particular frame of reference? our perspective and how does that how has that developed and how does that influence the way we see the world and basically it's it's a like it's a big complex problem and Harris um doesn't seem to grasp the complexity of the situation and just how difficult it is now to just to get into to that example of the facts um one of the things that Harris criticizes Peterson in the debate about is that Peterson will take a religious text for instance and he'll interpret it in a particular way and Harris says that that's just um, it's kind of, well he doesn't say it he doesn't say that it's intellectually dishonest but he says that there's a problem that in that in that there are an infinite an infinite number of interpretations of that text and it's just like a Rorschach test where you can look at it and then take whatever you want out of it and the problem being that some people take uh, pathological elements out of that and then behave in a pathological way but Peterson's response and rejoinder to that is that it's the same thing with facts, actually. It's not like the facts just present them to ourselves and we just say, oh, there's a fact. From the, from the time we're born and through our entire evolutionary history, our consciousness, like our, our, perception, our perceptive capacity for engaging with the world is channeled in a, in a certain direction, in, well, in certain directions, uh, and it's very complex. And what we have is that we have, like, whenever we're interpreting something, we are, first of all, first of all, there has to be valences of value in, in what we're seeing in the world. And it's only out of that value that we then can get a handle on what we then consider the facts. Now, the, the way I'd put it is that they're, like, just, um, just logically, just reasonably, rationally, there are facts in the world, right? We can say that, okay, there are, there are certain things about something that are true, and there are like vastly more things about that thing that are not true. So you can do that about any object or any event that has ever happened or that is present in the world right now. It's just there are certain things, there are going to be certain facts. Now, first of all, but we, but how do we get to those facts? This is the point that Peterson and even Weinstein, I think, in the, when, he, when he's moderating makes, is that to get to those facts, we need to first interpret. We need to look at, we need to see the world around us, like we need to, if, just to use the example of vision, we have to look at, like, take our visual field and then isolate different elements of that visual field, which without value would just be a, a chaotic mess of colors. And even then, there might not even be colors because one color compared to another is, it's like they're different. What colors actually are, are like values, they are, they attract our attention in different ways. And 
when when we see something new like a new color that grabs our attention and we are we are attracted to it and we then pay attention to it and and so on, on a very basic level when we have a visual field what we're what we're doing is we're isolating um we're isolating a piece of that visual field and we are creating an, like an object uh, a represented object in our mind of that thing of value right this is what we've brought up a couple times on the show before about like the the world not as objects but as a form for action what purpose would will that object then be in my life if something doesn't have a purpose for us doesn't have a, a value in and of itself we don't see it like we don't see every blade of grass when we're looking at a lawn unless there's a purpose for doing so we just see grass now maybe when we zoom up really close and we take a look then we're saying then we you know then looking at each blade of grass is a value right and we're seeing blades of grass we don't have a name for every blade of grass in our lawn but we call it our lawn um so there's like this um this level there are levels of levels of values and levels of importance that we ascribe to things in the world and it's only once we have given those things value and then um and then like basically made a word for them a concept for them that they become <clears throat> facts that, that that we can interpret in relation to other facts so so um he kind of just he uses harris's argument against peterson's interpretation against him um by saying that well we need that interpretive framework to even come to an understanding of what the facts are and we do that all the time and he'd agree yeah we we um there are facts and we do learn things from them but there's there's something going on underneath the level of those facts that has has more in common with a story or with a personality that is something with a, a particular character that plays out in a particular way over time that determines how we see it what we do about it and what we will do about it in the future and harris doesn't seem to think that we need that at all yeah yeah harris harris kind of he just keeps dodging the question and he keeps coming back to accuse Jordan Peterson of being uh, dogmatic or of, of being um, a monotheist. So there's always some suggestive kind of quality whenever he's, uh, when Peterson kind of gets him up against the wall to basically just say, so, you know, you say that there's this uh, transcendental uh, rationality is going to save humanity. And Harris says, well, yes. And then, he says, well, what is it then? What, what is it actually? Yeah. And he, he just, nope, he just skips right on by, just keeps on going. But that's what the, that's the point is that, and Jordan Peterson even says at one point, he says uh, that Harris is an atheist, but he lives as though God exists. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, I think that was a very important point that I don't think that, you know, I, I think it kind of, people kind of skipped over it, but that's what he's talking about is in this structure this like the, this archetypal structure you have um there are you don't have a lot of, you have so you just you only have so many options of how you live in the world and it you it comes down to as peterson would say there's order and then there's chaos and then there's different combinations there's different degrees and you know if you these uh this idea of god and the idea of truth the idea of trying to build a morality belongs to a realm of the of a perspective of a personality that is uh, its own type of archetype and I think that Jordan Peterson's really he's trying to 
break the ground here to get down below their their disagreements about you know these kind of superficial things about religions about you know the the history of religions and about um uh, you know, secular versus religious dogma, and he's trying to break through so that they can finally get to discuss what is at the bottom of it, you know, at the bottom of, of morality and what it means to behave in the quote-unquote right way, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned that uh, that Harris evades that question like several times. That's one of that's one of the things that Harris is great at is he's always got like an immediate response to something, right? So yeah. if if so if so if Peterson brings up a uh, like a counterpoint or you know he he picks apart something, Harris will just be like, okay, we'll ignore that. Go to this other point, right? He he's always got got a new response ready, um, but he never really acknowledges um, and takes on board the criticism and analyzes why it was a valid criticism. He just go, moves right on to the next point. Like he'll be like, oh, well, that's yeah, that's true about Christianity, but let's talk about Islam where it's not true. Inst- yeah. Instead of of looking at the point that that Peterson made and why it doesn't apply to Christianity and what what that might mean, like for his wider worldview, he just moves on to the to to, to the next piece of evidence that he has to make his point. So I think that that um, while they were both guilty of this at various times during the debates, that is um, trying to make. Th- trying to make their point as opposed to, to get to the truth. I think that Harris was the worst defender in, in that sense because um, every time I noticed Peterson doing it, it, when I'd think about it afterwards, I'd, I'd, I'd realize, oh, well, he's actually making a, a bigger point. Um, but one of the things that Peterson has been criticized is cr- criticized for is um, evading, evading certain questions. And that, that was apparent, um, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, that people find annoying about... Um, not only these interviews, but or these debates, but uh, other interviews with Peterson, where it seems like he's avoiding a question, but really, as he he describes, it's because the question to him is very complex and he doesn't know the answer. So he's trying to figure out the answer. And this happened at least twice in these first two debates. And the the first one was um, like a, uh, Weinstein had asked a, asked Peterson a question. Basically, can you agree that there are bad things? written in the Bible, like things that are just morally reprehensible and we shouldn't accept them. And instead of just saying like, yes, and then giving his answer, like Peterson, it took him a while to eventually say that, um, that uh, on the level of the sentence, yes, you know, on the level of the paragraph, maybe, and, but on, on the level of the, like the, the entire work, that, then it's debatable and it's hard to say. And the point he was making there is that if you look at a, a story, if you look at any any story, because the, the Bible is a story, you can have um, certain sentences that only make sense in a certain context. And then when you look at the, like the entire context, it might put things in a different, uh, you know, it, it, they, they look different in the, in the, in the big context. Uh, Harris responded back that, oh, well, you know, there are certain things, certain passages in the Bible that no matter what context you think about them, in they're just simply wrong. He gives the example of uh, like Moses's laws for warfare, and I think he's got a you know he's got a good point that when you look at the Bible as a you know um, through this this prism of seeing it as the Word of God as a, a, a direct revelation where every sentence is true taken individually or collectively or in context in in or out of context, then you get people today who look at the laws of Moses and think it's okay to 
to go into a village and rape the women while they kill all the kill all the the boys and men and because that that's essentially like the laws of tribal warfare from the you know first first millennium bc so he's right there but the 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 what the point that peterson makes that i think is also a valid point is that in the in the wide story and we can even expand that story to you know from from the bible to, to till today there's a certain context um and there's a certain context for history right when we look at history yeah. and we look at the way in which people's behaved and the like the just the horrors of history we can see that in a we can see that in a context and we can even see it as um well we can see it in at least two ways the first one being that that these were just um basically crimes against humanity even though they happened millennia ago or we could see them as um in certain instances as things that were the that were adaptive at the time that weren't ideal but that they helped humanity survive in some way and that's a perspective that you can apply to any war for instance you can say that war was bad it shouldn't have happened it's like okay well that's a great like lofty ideal but what do you say to the people that are actually in the war fighting right yeah. the war has happened it has started there's nothing these people can do what then right um what well what... harris's argument would be just stop fighting why just stop no war make peace no war that's basically his whole argument against christianity against monotheism is just let's just get rid of all of it and it'll be better yeah. you know it's such a it's such a utopian way of thinking and i think that that's where you get this idea of his confusion of values and facts is that he thinks that since he finds things in religions immoral that they, it is a fact that they shouldn't exist. <laughs> he, he gets it all kind of back, backwards at that point. It's just because these things are bad, they shouldn't exist. That's it. End of story. But you're like, you want to say, no, let's look at the facts. You're, you're kind of uh, losing the plot with your own, your own morality, your own moral system. Let's actually look at the facts of what was going on at the historical facts so that we can understand what was going on and then build the morality onto that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and on top of that, one of the points Peterson made is that, well, how, what do you replace religions with and how do you do it? Right? Because religions for all their all their faults and flaws and peterson admits that there are they they've worked for a reason and without understanding why they work and how they work how are we going to create something to replace them essentially because that's one thing harris doesn't do he doesn't say how we can replace it and one of the the, the um fatal flaws that peterson points out in in harris's um plan essentially in like the moral landscape is that he identifies this thing that we should moving, be moving towards, well-being, but he points out that Harris has no way of measuring well-being. It's just this kind of like vague intuition that Harris has, but without actually knowing what it is and how to actually get there, then will Harris's project be successful or not? It, in, a, in a sense, he's just guessing that he's taking an intuition that he has and saying, okay, I think this will work. Let's put it into practice and see if it works. And that's essentially what, what all of the utopian ideologists have done for, you know, the exactly. past, you know, that's exactly what religions have done. Is it, exactly. Well, you know, they say, well, we've got, we've got it figured out. Here's what we're going to do, and we're going to fix everything. And it doesn't end up working like that. But uh, to get back to, to uh, Peterson's evasions, 
Um, well, one more point on that first one is that an example of, of a past atrocity that he puts into a different light would be uh, child sacrifice, human sacrifice. Because um, one of the things that Harris points out is that uh, human sacrifice is just one of the, the most horrible things in, in religion. And it is, it, according to Harris, it is the foundation of the Christian religion. It is the story of a sacrifice of a human being that is then given, uh, you know, given this reverential and, and holy status. And he calls that morally abhorrent. Um, and I don't think anyone, and including Peterson himself, Peterson himself today would would um, justify human sacrifice. But the point that Peterson makes is that, well, hold on a second, let's look at this. Um, of course, if you look at like the Aztecs and stuff, like they were bloody um, murderers, right? And and you, can, you can't really find a, a moral justification for that. But what you can do is, is find out why that might have happened and how it might have happened and or what might at least contribute to it that then you know provided the raw material that that belief system and practice um, grew out of. And he gives the example, he just asks, well, how many times in history might it have been advantageous to kill a child to, to, for the survival of the family and the tribe? Mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you just think about that, like I, I thought about that and I was just like, well, whoa, yeah. Because think about that really, in times of like privation and just um, of catastrophe, how many people, how many like people had to or felt the need um, to kill their own babies because they, there wasn't enough food to feed that child, right? And you see that today. Like, what is abortion if not a, a kind of child sacrifice? A kind of child sacrifice. Right. Wow. Yeah. Good point. And um, and so so there there were probably many times in human history where it was where it was a uh, like a, a survival necessity to to kill children there wasn't you know there wasn't birth control back then if if you're living in a in an environment where there's like no food and there's no birth control and you've got just all these babies well what's going to happen you know well we know what's going to happen because it even happens today you get people who will kill their children kill their babies and with with a a practice like that that is that is then um well with a practice like that that is in um in practice you know people are doing it you can then see how that just the, the bare existence of that might lead to a rationalization for it, which will then create a um, a belief system that entrenches it in social conduct and then takes it to, to a pathological degree. And but we but we can't just like write everything off as just religious superstition, right? One of the points that Peterson makes is that a lot of or he argues that all ritual. It's uh, and all even belief, all dogma. It starts out as a as a, a practice, as a behavior, which only then gets rationalized in a um, in a dogmatic form. And you could say that about everything, um, because that's the way the human mind and behavior works. Is that we you know we come up with narratives on top of the real reasons why we do things. The question that neither of them get to is, well, might there be an actual <clears throat> metaphysical reality to some of these dogmas. Now, Peterson is more open to that question than Harris is. Harris just dismisses it, says that's not, that's not real. Um, those things don't exist. We don't need to include them in, in the framework. And this is one of those, um, you know, those spikes that Peterson's sending out into the unknown saying, well, just hold on a second. Maybe there is a metaphysical reality here. He's not willing to, to um, say explicitly what it is, but he, he, He's reaching out and trying to find it and trying to see, well, maybe there is. At least he's open to the possibility of it.
Well, and Harris shuts him down because in the beginning of the debates, he his whole entire point is that religious that religions are based around a central dogma that can't be questioned, and this and the dogmas of religion are especially pernicious because they concern an invisible world that cannot be verified by other people. And he says, you know, not all dogmas are created equal. Some are more dangerous than others. But once you have a dogma, it's quote unquote permanent. It erases free speech. And, you know, then it, it's like, you know, he, he points out examples where it justifies pathological behavior. But, you know, it basically for him is the devil in his moral in his moral system it's the thing that must be defeated before the you know transcendental rationality can come to exist but mm -hmm. like as we've been saying he he's really missing the point because as peterson points out the dogma is predates religion the dogma is way before religion the dogma is it's before the books it's before the you know christianity it's before islam and it's in you know it's in the culture it's in the order it's in the structure it's in it's like he says it's probably even in our minds it's it's how we it's how we have survived the dogma are these very specific conditions which humanity has had to live under and which is you know which have been difficult and which have been you know that at times almost wipes humanity off the face of the earth but this we can't view the world without this structure that we're involved that we've evolved with and that we live with and that you know is also kind of programmed by our culture mm -hmm. but yeah he 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 keeps trying to bring Harris back around to this to this idea that okay so there's more to this which is strange because Harris is so adamant in outside of the debates about higher consciousness, you know, um, realms of psychic activity, uh, mm -hmm. the places that you can only gain access to if you trip on mushrooms to him, yeah. you know, outside of that, it doesn't mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not a hill of beans. You know, if you actually mm -hmm. want to build your life on it, it's just fun if you want to have a weekend, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, maybe that's being too harsh on him because I did, I did enjoy the, the debates, but no, he, you know, Peterson says that we live our lives through, um, a very narrow framework and it's, uh, socially that it's like it's constricted and we don't have the freedom that Harris claims that we have and it's because of these reasons that actually go all the way back to what we were saying about um, one of the reasons that Harris's system is slightly flawed um, and that's because you know he says that it's universally agreeable that all of that if if every human being were to suffer for the maximum of, maximum amount of time for the uh, the maximum amount of pain without learning anything, without living a life of any value, that that would be the worst possible thing. We could, you know, that's universally agreeable. But the problem is that there, I guarantee you, there are people out there who would just lick their lips, you know, those masochist, sadomasochist, uh, you know, antisocial people who, um, you know, it's, it's like, I understand that what he's saying is that, okay, for people of goodwill, it's a fact that that would be a bad thing. Okay, but let's let's be honest about it. It's it's people of goodwill. It's people with a certain mindset, people who have um, certain goals, values that aren't universally shared. That right there, you've 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 got kind of you've got an issue there that you have to deal with. And he he just brushes it off by saying that evil can be 
the problem of evil, the problem of somebody of enjoying the fact that all of humanity suffering would be the you know would be hilarious um, can just be completely collapsible as a category. He says that you can just do away with it because it, what it really all comes down to is ignorance or brain chemistry gone amok or hmm. somebody ate too much uh, you know uh, something brain damaging chemicals anyways but that's that's his idea that's his take on evil which is so such a strange thing i you know i've listened to the debates and i'm put i'm trying to understand what he's what he's saying along these lines about values and about morality and it was just so strange for me to hear him you know that that kind of a that kind of a frame of uh, that kind of a statement from somebody who I consider to be highly, highly intelligent. But I think the problem is, is that he is maybe a little bit too intelligent for his own good. <laughs> you know, he, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Well, I think, I think that uh, that opens up to a wider point it, is that I think there is a certain arrogance in Harris's method and in his plan in the sense that he expects people to be like him. He expects people in general to be like him, very intelligent and analytic, and yeah. um, where whereas that just simply isn't the case, right? The the way in which he thinks and the way in which he's structured his own life and his own thought won't apply to all people, and I think that's the one of the points that Peterson is trying to make. He didn't state it explicitly in these words, but um, the stories, like the religious stories they have a value to people who cannot and will not be like Sam Harris, right? Yeah. And this is, Brett Weinstein made this point, and um, I think that Harris even conceded it to a certain degree, is that for for a lot of people, religious stories are heuristics, that um, um, like all people can't do all the calculations to come to certain like conclusions, th- like the way that Sam Harris might do. And, and that like people need heuristics, they need shortcuts essentially, and stories and narratives and myths and religions provide that for a lot of people um it because a lot of people just can't do that kind of thinking they can't do that kind of those kind of calculations in their mind all the time. they just need a story they need a a model they need a personality, a character in order to um identify with and to imitate and that's effective for for well it's effective for everyone um even someone like like sam harris but um but some people are able some people just have the like the the intellectual and the the moral capacity to go beyond that to like widen their sphere of what influences them and and um and how they kind of create their own their own character but for a lot of people it's that that's really the only that's the only thing that works and that's Peterson's point, is that it does work, it has worked, and it's the reason we have religions. Now, but this is where he would agree with Harris, is that their religions and any like any ideology or any structure has to be updated, right? It has to, yeah. be, um, it has to be made new for the times in which we're living. And one of the things that Harris would say that, is that we're living with outdated belief systems. And yeah, I'd say absolutely true. Um, but what, what, but what he and Peterson are both trying to do, but which I think Peterson is doing with, uh, with more, um, well, just doing better and you know with more accuracy, is looking at those those traditions and finding what can what can be kept from them, because 
essentially like we can't just throw we can't just throw out the stories completely that would just um that just leaves people without it, it's like it's pulling the the rug out from underneath people as you know as a whole and um but but what we can do is find find what is in there and being very careful not to throw out like a very important baby like making sure not to throw, <laughs> making throw making sure not to throw baby jesus out with the bathwater because there may be a baby jesus in there in a form that is essential for um like for society that Harris might just throw out like um you know without a second thought like we we need to approach these kinds of things carefully and like th and there are certain things that I think we'd all agree on and that that Peterson would too like he's no fan of religious fundamentalism and um like but there are you know there are things in those stories that perhaps another story would do right maybe we can write a new story and uh and it it'll you know it'll, it'll hit all the right buttons but that's really hard right it it takes it takes the like the the cultural selective pressure of generations to find out what works so we can we can introduce a new story right we can create a new mythology and but really that it's only the test of time which will show if that works or not and we're not we're not going to be alive to see the results so if we want to do something in the here and now we might be better off looking at the existing stories and trying to you know find those gems in them without throwing out the entire thing yeah i i mean what is it? peterson says that you know there are some new ideas uh that or there are so many new ideas out there that are so totally bogus that if you were to implement any of them your society would probably fall apart but at the same time there are a few new ideas that come along that if your society doesn't implement them then they could fall apart and that's the problem that yeah. we run into <laughs> is the fact that you're you know damned if you do damned if you don't and it's 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 um it's a trial and error and at the same time it's also i was thinking about it earlier today it's the fact that society doesn't choose it um these things all as at least you know these days it doesn't seem like society chooses things on it on its uh you know as a as a whole as a you know a monolithic entity what happens is that you know everybody kind of tinkers with all of these things and you know the people that make the wrong choices um or the the bad choices or the choices for the system that won't the idea that won't work um you know, they, they, well, in the case of the Soviet Union, then, you know, they ended up taking over the entire country. But, you know, these kinds of ideas, uh, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, kind of brought online by everybody. But mm -hmm. everybody's constantly tinkering with all of these different ideas. And it's just, it's, um, you know, it's in order to do it right, as Peterson points out, you have to be very conscientious about what has worked and what hasn't worked in mm -hmm. the past. Mm -hmm. And you can't, like you said, throw baby Jesus out with the bath water because he took some LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and now you, and now everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. But well, yeah. or go ahead. Or was no, that? Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Well, the the second question that Peterson seemed to avoid was when he was asked, "Well, what kind of God do you believe in?" Well, first he said he doesn't believe in God, but he rather he acts as if God exists. He says that's an important distinction. Um, but then he was uh, kind of backed into a corner to say, okay, well, what kind of God is that? And 
he these are some examples of i i think of again of peterson kind of reaching out and being kind of like kind of vague um but at the same time there there are some really interesting things in here so this is these are some of the um, some excerpts from the answer he gave about what god is um um well to just to start out with he you know after he gave these answers um, he was criticized by by Harris because Harris basically said, "Oh well, that has that has no resemblance to the God that most people believe in, you know, that say they believe in, like you know, the the old man in the sky that uh, that acts like uh, like Yahweh in the Old Testament or the New Testament and says things and does things and answers your prayers and is watching you all the time." And uh, well, and Peterson responded, "Well, you weren't asking me what the the common belief in God was. You were asking me what kind of God I was talking about." And uh, okay, okay, fair enough, but. Uh, but uh, Peter or Harris's point was, well, how does that apply to most people? Well, I'll get into that after I read some of these responses. So, the first one, um, I kind of have trouble m making out just because of the way that Peterson phrased it. But here's what he wrote: God is how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence of an action of consciousness across time, as the most real aspects of existence manifest themselves across the longest of time frames but are not necessarily apprehensible as objects in the here and now. So what that means in some sense is that you have conceptions of reality built into your biological and metaphysical structure. There are a consequence of processes of evolution that occurred over unbelievably vast spanses, expanses of time. And that structure of your perception of reality, uh, or and that structure your perception of reality in ways that it wouldn't be structured if only if you only lived for the amount of time that you're going to live, so like a lifetime. So that first bit was what was confusing to me. Um, how, you, how we imaginatively and collectively represent the existence of an action of consciousness across time. So basically there's an action of consciousness across vast stretches of time, and when we represent that to ourselves, um, imaginatively and collectively, we get the image of God. Um, so he gave his exp explanation for that as being like the the um, the conceptions, the interpretive framework that we have developed over our entire history, and that we then, uh, th when we think about that, that thing that can't be grasped as any kind of um, you know object available to our perception, um, we think of that in terms of God, like that long term. Maybe this is how, this is how I see it at least, or how I interpret it. It's this long term. Um, influence, or it's like a long-term mode of consciousness that is playing itself out over billions of years. And in that sense, you could think that it, that it is non-temporal, in the sense that it's eternal, but that it applies at every at every instance and over the long stretch of all time. It's like a, um, a, sh a something that shapes that shapes time. It shapes reality through time. Maybe I'd put it that way. Yeah. But um, the the next things he said these these ones are shorter. Um, God is that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. God is the highest value in the hierarchy of values. God is what calls and what responds in the in the eternal call to adventure. God is the voice of conscience. God is the source of judgment, mercy, and guilt. God is the future to which we make sacrifices and something akin to the transcendental repository of reputation. God is that which selects among men in the eternal hierarchy of men. Um, 
So there was an article on Quillette this morning, it might have been last night, called The Peculiar Opacity of uh, Jordan Peterson's Religious Views. And so this author took issue with these um, descriptions of God, um, taking the same line that Harris did, that these these are so abstract and have nothing to do with what ordinary people think of God that, you know, why is Peterson even saying them? Because they're totally irrelevant, because that's not what people believe in when they are speaking of God. Now, um, now go ahead. Now, it seemed like that audience uh, resonated quite a bit with what with right. his description of God. Mm-hmm. And that's what—that's one of the things that he said to to Weinstein and uh, and Harris. He said, "Well, you know what? You know, well, because Harris had said, well, what percentage of the population actually thinks of a god like that?" And and Peterson said, "Well, actually, that's a good question. What pop, what percentage actually does?" He says, "Because I've been saying these things that talks for you know for months to thousands of people, and people seem to be, resp- be responding quite well to it." Mm-hmm. And he says, "Well, if if what we're talking about here is the fact that people have very confused notions of the ultimate level of reality and uh, and and the divine then yeah of course we're we're hopelessly confused so uh so so yeah um and that's the that's what i thought when i when i read these responses to him and even heard the heard harris's response in the in the debate is that if you look at the like the history of of humanity um we can, I think, we can dispense with this idea of just like a universal, a universally true revelation that is the the divine, you know, word of God that is right in all its aspects. It's not wrong at all. It's like, yeah, that's nonsense, and it's 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 always been nonsense in a sense, because um, one of the central um, central tenets of like the Christian faith, for instance, as Peterson points out, is this idea of truth and and what is truth if not determining the truth. Truth has the highest value. And if you have a book, well, if truth is your highest value, then you will judge that book in terms of truth. And that's what actually leads a lot of people to become atheists in the first place. But um, but when you look at this history of religion and the history of ideas about God, it's like, is it, does it really make sense to think that people had like a complete and accurate idea thousands of years ago that will then also apply to our situation today? Well, it's like, no, just like science, People had dumb ideas. People were grasping, just like Peterson's grasping, just like everyone is, at an understanding of something and trying to put it into terms that make sense and that make sense of reality and the facts of existence. They're looking for that interpretive framework. And what uh, what Peterson's essentially trying to do is to to find to, like what were they really saying? What were what is the thing that they were trying to describe or trying to to put into story form, trying to characterize and personify. What is that about the structure of reality that they are trying to explain? And uh, like that's what science does when it's when it is thinking in terms of objects and the the things that make up physical matter and and the relations between objects in the world. And that is, I think, what religion and what like what we might call spirituality that should be the goal of spirituality is to de- determine these things and try to come to better and better explanations and generalizations and formulations of dogma because all dogma is really is like a um well uh, like, like a working hypothesis i mean it didn't originally mean like a set in stone belief system um that's kind of just the the connotation that it has acquired over time. But we need to basically figure out our our religious generalizations, just as we have our scientific 
material generalizations. And so what, what Peter's doing, Peterson's doing with these um, like things that he's describing is that he's trying to find, well, what is, you know, what is God when we, in, in all these stories, what function has, does God play in all our, of our theologies and philosophies? What about the universe leads people to, to think about reality in such a way to, to ascribe certain things to God? And if we just look at a couple of, of the things, like um, some of the specific things he said, um, I'll just take a couple, like, um, or a few. God is what calls and responds in the eternal call to adventure. God is the voice of conscience. God is the source of judgment, mercy, and guilt. Because if we look at all of those things, those are all things that we can't explain. Um, and Harris, at one point, um, after Peterson had given an account of prayer, because he was basically asked to give an account of prayer that works, um, so he gave the example. Gave an example of okay, well, you know, things are going really bad in your life. We'll try this. You sit at the end of your bed. You basically confess to yourself and and uh, and like the universe that you don't know what's going on. Things are bad, and you don't know what to do. And you just put a call out to to whatever. What should I do, right? And then you take the answer that is given to you. And chances are, it's not going to be something that you like, and it's going to be something that you really don't like. And Harris responded back by saying, oh, well, that's just perfectly understandable in terms of human psychology. And Peterson's like, what? It's like, no, it's not. And, and, uh, and then Harris says, oh, well, yeah, well, well, we, well uh, oh, how did he get there? But he, he, he basically ended up saying, oh, well, we don't, even underst we don't understand consciousness. We don't understand where anything comes from. And Peterson says, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, because you because we don't know. It's like so when you say, Oh, that's just perfectly understandable in terms of human psychology, well we don't know where human psychology comes from in these areas. It's like when when you put out a like a uh, you know, a call like that, a prayer, and you receive an answer that is nowhere, you know, you know, in your previous consciousness, a, a true novelty in your experience, where does that novelty come from? Where does that new thing, that new idea come from? Where does inspiration come from? What is the vo where does the voice of conscience conscience come from in the first place? Why is it that some things are 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 better than others? Not only why are they felt as better than others, but in fact, well, I'll use the word fact, in truth, better than others. Why do we, why, why are, why is one thing better than another? Why should one thing be better than any other? Um, and the, you know, the call to adventure, what is it that calls us? What is it that inspires us to, to go out and, uh, and answer that call? And, and who, you know, what responds to that call? How does, how do we play with the universe? How do we interact with this, this, you know, grand mystery? And then same thing. What is the source of judgment? What is the source of, of, um, the, the universal, you know, comparison and grading and hierarchization of things? Why, why, why do structures exist? Why do things move in certain directions and not others? What, how do we, you know, what is the yardstick by, by which we measure truth and, and value? Where do these things come from? Um, what is the source of, you know, mercy and guilt? Why should we feel guilty about anything? There may be an evolutionary account, but, in, but if, we, if we go down deep enough, it's like, well, well, why would we need that in the first place? Why would we need life in the first place? It's like these are all deep, mysterious questions that we don't have answers to and that have traditionally been, been answered by the religious traditions and by what what we today call spirituality and what we call a religion and trying, trying to give a story form that places all these things in context and gives them a, a role in the story of our lives to, that leads us in the direction of, of a better future for ourselves and for the entire world. It's like, you can't, 
you can't just write all these things off and then get rid of the stories that incorporate all of them and say, oh, well, that's that's all just human psychology. It's like, well, what, you know, what world are you living on where that is the case? It is it is a a sterile. It's like living in a you know a sterile white hospital without any rooms in it, or I mean, without any furniture or anything. It's just dry, sharp, you know, and uh, um, oppressive. <laughs> it's like that, that's not you know that's not any world that I would enjoy living in. That's for sure. <laughs> very good points. Um, very very good points. But what's one thing I found interesting? If I'll just bring something in from an outside source, um, while I was listening to these lectures, I was also reading a a short book of lectures by Alfred North Whitehead called Religion in the Making. Now these were um, these were lectures he gave in like 1926, yeah, 1926, so almost a hundred years ago, and I just want to read a couple of things that that he had to say in this book because they really kind of like they evoked Peterson for me, and I know Peterson's read some um, some Whitehead, so I don't know. Um, but I, I don't know how much his thought has actually influenced his thinking. So it might just be coincidence, or maybe, you know, he read these these things a while ago and they kind of shaped his thought. But um, he starts out one part of of his this lecture. Oh, I, well, I should say, first of all, um, Whitehead was a mathematician, and towards the end of his life he um, he turned to philosophy and moved to the States and started teaching there at uh, Harvard, I believe. And so the last decades of his life, he was pretty much strictly focused on philosophy. <clears throat> and so he's considered like a really, really deep thinker. He's kind of hard to read at, at places just because he's um, kind of dense and, and vague. But but there are like really interesting ideas in there if you unpack them. So he starts out part of this lecture as um, uh, the subheading is value and the purpose of God. So he starts out, the purpose of God is the attainment of value in the temporal world. An active purpose is the adjustment of the present for the sake of adjustment of value in the future, immediately and remotely. So um, I'll read some more, but right here he's doing something that I see as similar to what Peterson is doing. He's finding, he, he's seeing these things in the world for which we can't um, really find an account of that we can't explain and then um, f fitting God into a worldview where then everything makes sense. So so how do we, um, how do purposes work in the world so that the, you know, we adjust in the present for something that happens in the future? And, uh, and what is that future and how do we experience it? Well, we experience it as a value, first of all, as a, a value worth attaining so that we strive for it, and then as a value realized when, it, um, when we experience it in the now. And that, that experiencing, that ma manifestation of that value is then experienced as value. Well, Whitehead says that the pur that's the purpose of God is the attainment of value in the temporal world. Um, a bit later on, he writes um now this this i think points to like a deep metaphysical explanation for that first point of or that first explanation of peterson's that i said you know i had trouble ex explaining but that i you know tried to get uh, uh, an understanding of so whitehead writes the order of the world is no accident there is nothing actual which could be actual without some measure of order the religious insight is the grasp of this truth that the order of the world, 
the depth of reality of the world, the value of the world in its whole and in its parts, the beauty of the world, the zest of life, the peace of life, and the mastery of evil are all bound together, not accidentally, but by reason of this truth, that the universe exhibits a creativity with infinite freedom and a realm of forms with infinite possibilities, and that this creativity and these forms are together impotent to achieve actuality apart from the completed ideal harmony, which is God. So God is that which, without which order would be impossible in the world. Um, well, in a nutshell, I won't try to um, <laughs> explain it any, or, you know, try to get there any deeper than that, you know, without thinking about it for a while. And then just a couple more um, this is from like the near the very end of the of the book. The limitation of God is his goodness. He gains his depth of actuality by his harmony of valuation. It is not true that God is in all respects infinite. If he were, he would be evil as well as good. Also, this unlimited fusion of evil with good would mean mere nothingness. He is something decided and is thereby limited. He is, in com he is complete in the sense that his vision determines every possible value. Such a complete vision coordinates and adjusts every detail. Thus, his knowledge of the relationships of particular modes of value is not added to or disturbed by the realization in the actual world of what is already conceptualized or conceptually realized in his ideal world. Okay, that would be... that that depends on things he's previously said, so it might be... Um, not worth saying out loud at this point. Um, but there were a couple other ones that I wanted to read here. This, well, let's see if this is one. The kingdom of heaven is not the isolation of good from evil. It is the overcoming of evil by good. This transmutation of evil into good enters into the actual world by reason of the inclusion of the nature of God, which includes the ideal vision of each actual evil so met with a novel consequent as to issue in the restoration of goodness. Now, what I think he's basically saying there is that, uh, well, he's first arguing about the, well, he's, he's analyzing the existence of evil in the world, which is something that Harris and Peterson were both trying to do, um, except, you know, Harris without quite the, the understanding of evil that most people have. And um, Whitehead is arguing that what the, the, one of the functions of God and one of the, the ways in which we understand God is as that th thing inherent in the universe by which evil is overcome. So when an evil happens, it's not that God created that evil. It's not that God himself is evil. It's that the, well, first, the, the evil is either just a result of accident of the, you know, the material structure of the world. And that might be like, um, well, just accidents or some natural disasters or catastrophes or, you know, you're walking down your street and, you, and a, um, you know, a brick falls on your head. That is a, a type of evil. There is also malevolent evil, though. And it is malevolent, malevolent evil arguably comes from the, the free will, the free choice of, um, of creatures themselves. You know, whether that can be reduced to a biological level or not is irrelevant because it is that being that is doing it and not, um, not the, the totality of the universe directing his or her actions, but that when those evils occur, 
the, the function of God is to make a good out of that evil, to take that, that bad scenario, even that worst-case scenario, and then to see what possibilities surround that that can then be turned into a good. Um, and you see that we see that in life all the time, where uh, a tragedy can be the, um, the, the ground in which a new and better future is, is birthed and grown. And that would be, you know, that introduction of novelty in, a, in an evil situation would be what Whitehead would, would see as one of the functions of God. A couple last ones. This ties into what Peterson said about um, uh, God being that which, is, that which eternally dies and is reborn in the pursuit of higher being and truth. Whitehead says, the world lives by its incarnation of God in itself. It ties that back to the way in which God works in the world is through our um, our apprehension of of novelty, of new situations, of of ideal futures, ideal um, ideal forms that we then manifest in the present to make a better future out of a um, a flawed present or even an evil present. And maybe one more at the very end, or. No, actually, that, I'll just leave it there. If you want to read more, read that little book. But uh, but to to tie all this together, I think that um, one of the things that Whitehead was just doing there, and that that Peterson's doing, but that that Harris isn't, is um, what we what we talked about, what we made reference to when we were talking about Collingwood's book uh, Speculum Mentis, because. I think we described the overall framework of that book where he's describing art, religion, science, history, and philosophy. <clears throat> and he, some of the things that he says about religion are compatible with the things that Harris says and as well as the things that Peterson says. But he points out that, well, he, first of all, he points out that religion does serve a purpose and it's you can't eradicate it because there is a certain mode of being to which religion speaks. And especially in the in like the in childhood development and throughout, it's like those stories serve a purpose, and they they apply to they work on on people's minds in certain ways so that they develop in certain ways, and but he'd say that that's that's not the end of the road basically, they're essential but there is more to it and that's where he would introduce philosophy. Philosophy would be like a you know putting those truths into language that is comprehensible not as just a symbol system not as just a story now you can't eliminate the story but you can add an interpretation to that story that seems to get to the truth that underlies it and like with all art even it's not i don't think it would be necessarily it's it's not necessary that that truth would have initially been in initially been intended to accompany like that story you can look at a story and and the the, uh, the person writing it may have just done it on a whim right oh this seems like a good story but it might capture something um that the you know the writer him or herself wasn't even aware of consciously and but through that interpretation you then say oh look at that that's that's really something um and I think that's essentially what Peterson is doing is he's looking for that philosophical truth that isn't just like like uh the the ex or it isn't just the 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 best interpretation of that work of art or that story or that narrative it is a truth 
that can be a truth that is really true about the universe, about the, the, the world of our experience, that can be expressed in that story form. And um, so I think that's, that's what he is essentially trying to do, is to find those truths that underlie the stories without, without getting rid of the stories, without flushing down baby Jesus. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So, uh, any more thoughts on the, on those debates, Corey? Uh, no, I think that that's pretty much says it all. I mean, at least for the the first couple of debates. I mean, yeah, you know, there's I haven't watched the. the I think there's still two more out there. Uh, the yeah. first two took place in Vancouver. Then the second two took place in where? Did you say think, Dublin? Yeah, I think Dublin and uh, London. <clears throat> Dublin and London. Yeah. So there's, I, you know, just one. If I did have one last thought, I would just wish that Jordan Peterson, I'd be honest, I'd say I wish he was having this debate with someone else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really, I don't, um, you know, I don't know where this whole intellectual dark web thing is going, but I kind of feel like um, my, my takeaway from it was that I hope that Jordan Peterson does, he, that right now as he's articulating these ideas, that he, I hope that he comes out of this with um, with even stronger uh or a more uh, broader and deeper understanding of 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 what he's looking for because mm -hmm. you know i mean it's i just i don't think that harris is the guy who's going to <laughs> give him the um the debate that that he's wanting uh, yeah. in terms of yeah what what everybody else wants you know which is to understand like you said the what the deeper truths that are underneath these narratives um and i think that the debates are great. You can see Jordan Peterson fumble. You can see, and you can see him, you know, really struggling to think. But at the same time, like I said before, I just I wish that he was speaking with someone who was a you know a specialist on morality or someone who was a specialist on religious history or a historian. And because um, Sam Harris, as as brilliant as he is, he um, he does have this dogmatic streak that just. There's just a there's a brick wall, but yeah. maybe that's what Jordan Peterson wanted. <laughs> well, I saw a, a sh an, an interview clip from uh, it looked like just the day after the last event. Um, it's on the Rebel Wisdom, and one of the questions he asked that the interviewer asked was if Peterson had thought that Harris could approach the debate um, in a how did he put it um, in like well honestly in a sense like if he could be arguing in good faith basically because he because he does have um like a, a reputation to uphold and he does have his ideas that have been put on the record so you know can you approach a debate like this you know if you're not willing to change your mind and peterson responded that he didn't get that impression at all he thought that um that, that it actually went well in the, in that uh you know sam harris was was being totally open and um, and approaching it in, all in good faith, and that one of the good things that Peterson thought had come out of it was that they had they had each gotten a better understanding of what the other person was saying, and had each been able to better articulate their arguments. So he thought that he personally, Peterson, had um, had come to more clarity about what he was thinking about and trying to to develop. So I think that's a that's good in and of itself. And I think that um, you know, like Peterson, it's not like he just talks to 
to Sam Harris, like he, he does have interesting conversations with all kinds of people. So I think that this will just open the door, hopefully to more like um, he interviewed, he had a, a short discussion months ago with Ian McGilchrist, who wrote the master and his emissary on the, um, you know, the basically the, the two, ba the two brain hemispheres. That was a great conversation. I'd like them to speak again, but I'm sure that, uh, you know, or I hope that he'll, you know, he'll find more people to discuss these things with, like you said, and to, to really kind of get into the, to the nitty gritty and try to find something. So, um, yeah. Um, with that said, if you want to check out the interviews, we will have, I'll have, I'll put links to all four of them in the show description, even though we just discussed the, the first two. Um, and, but they should be coming out in better quality in August. So you can wait until then if you want as well. Otherwise, um, thanks for tuning in, everybody, and hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks, Corey, for joining me on this uh, magical device that we call the interwebs. Uh, oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> All right. So, everyone, take care, and we'll see you next week. Have a good week, everyone.